Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. My name is Wendy Beecham. I'm the CEO of Watermark, and we are so thrilled to have the attendance at this event tonight and to see the interest of uh, our audience in, in talking about women on boards. I'd like to begin by thanking uh, Virgin America for hosting this evening. Holly Nelson, who is the CFO for Virgin America, is a very active member of Watermark. And so through her generosity, we were able to be here in this very lounge-like uh, venue for Virgin America, which is kind of fun. So thank you. Holly can't be here this evening, but uh, we're thanking her in absentia. The program tonight, well, before I begin, I'd like to just say a few words about Watermark, the organization who is uh, really driving uh, the program for this evening. And um, we changed the name of the organization at the end of September, and we are the definitive organization in the Bay Area for exceptional women leaders. And when we talk about Watermark, it really means reaching a certain level, but it also means making an impact. And we believe as an organization that the most successful and innovative organizations are those that support and empower their talented women leaders. And so uh, we're very thrilled that you could join us this evening to learn more about what we're doing to empower women to uh, reach the C-suite and join us on boards. Our partner tonight is UC Davis with the Graduate School of Management, as well as some other professors from sociology and psychology. The first part is going to be an overview of the results of the 2010 Census of Women Leaders from UC Davis. So we're going to start with the facts. What is the current picture, the current state of affairs? Then we're going to move into a panel discussion looking at some of the causes and consequences of why those numbers might be the way they are. Looking at social network theory, how women network differently than men, looking at stereotyping and uh, corporate culture issues and just really having a dialogue about how each of these issues could be impacting the numbers. So with that, let's kick it off. It's my pleasure to introduce the Associate Dean of the UC Davis Graduate School of Management, Mr. Michael Mayer. Michael. Thank you, Wendy. It's a great pleasure to be here. First of all, uh, I'm not Dean Steve Corral. Uh, I've never been Dean Steve Corral and have no intention of being Dean Steve Corral. Dean Steve Corral right now is in Chicago, would much rather be here, uh, but he's filling in for the Chancellor, and I'm filling in for Dean Corral. Somebody's filling in for me, but I'm not quite sure who that is. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here and to present the results of the census uh, this is the sixth year that University of California at Davis has been doing this census. Uh, we're very proud of the, of the work that's gone into this. The two co-authors of the census this year are Amanda Kimball, who is going to present the results, and Donald Palmer, who is a professor of organizational behavior uh, in the Graduate School of Management. So uh, this is going to be a very interesting set of facts to kick off the evening, I believe. So, Amanda, would you do us the honors, please? Thank you. Thank you very much. The first thing I'd like to point out is the main finding in our study, which is that women hold just 9.5% of the board seats and highest paid executive positions at the companies, at the largest companies in California. Our study looked at the largest 400 companies in the state measured by market capitalization 
and it's the only study of its kind in California. Uh, we looked at both women among directors as well as women among the five highest paid executives at each firm. And among the director positions, women hold 10% of those positions. And as for highest paid executives, women hold 8.8% of those positions. Both of these numbers actually do represent a slight increase over last year. Uh, there is also variation by industry. So in particular, the three high-tech industries in our sample uh, were among the, those with the lowest representation of women. Uh, this graph shows the relationship between the percentage of women directors and company size. So it does happen that the largest firms tend to have the most directors, but as you can see from this graph, they also have the largest share of women on their boards. And all of the Fortune 100 companies in California have at least one woman director. Most of the companies in our study have no women directors. Most of the companies in our study have no women among the highest paid executives. And only 16 of the companies, of these 400 companies, have a woman serving as CEO. And there's very little change in these metrics over time. So on this graph, the red line represents the share of women among top executives the light blue line represents the share of women among directors, and the dotted line represents the share of women among the five highest paid executives. So women represent approximately 10% of the director positions and also approximately 10% of the top executive positions, no matter how you measure it. And on top of that, there has been almost no change over the last five years that we've done this study. The bottom line is CEOs. There were uh, 16 women CEOs this year, and that was up from 11 in 2006. So very little change over time, and about 10%. Women represent about 10% of the, of the leadership positions at the top companies in California. And that's the punchline. Thank you, Dr. Mayer. Thank you, Amanda. So we're going to open it for questions. We call this the, the flatline flat result, the flatline result. So are there questions about the, uh, the study itself? So here's a, if it's a really tough question, I'll give it to Amanda, otherwise I'll try. Well, you better give it to Amanda. Okay. So knowing this, that the trend has stayed flat or the same over the last five years, what do you suggest that we do to change it? Oh, I have an answer. But, yeah. Or, or better, answer. Yet, better yet, can we change it? Because obviously it hasn't been changing. The study has a list of, uh, companies of the top 400 publicly traded companies in California that have no women in the top five executive positions and no women directors. And that, that number is probably 150 or so. Uh, 141. 141, okay. Uh, so if all the women in California boycotted those companies, I think that would have a pretty significant impact. <laughs> I mean, seriously, consumer boycotts have a huge impact. People talk about uh, investor uh, boycotts and so forth, that has a, a little impact, but not much. But 
if, uh, if a company's, so we have a 10% uh, result in this study, if we had a 10% reduction in a company's revenues because women boycotted that company's products, that would have a huge impact. That's my, that's my rec- recommendation. The panelists will have better recommendations, I'm sure, but that's why. I just have one quick question. You mentioned technology being among the lowest in terms of industry sectors represented with the lowest percentage of women. Has there been a, an industry which has been a consistent leader in the percentage of women executives and directors over the five years of the study? And what is it? It's Unfortunately, it's changed a little bit um, from year to year uh, and looking at directors and executives. So we have uh, real estate has the highest percentage of women directors and consumer products and services has the highest percentage of women among highest paid executives. In both cases, it's about 14.4, 14.8%. So that percentage is a lot more consistent than any particular industry being at the top. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to invite our panelists now to uh, make their way to the stage. Thank you very much for uh, Michael and Amanda in kicking us off. And we'll have an opportunity to ask more questions a bit later about the data. Everyone will be given a copy of the study as you leave. And you can also access the study online uh, through the homepage at wearewatermark.org, as well as on the UC Davis Graduate School of Management um, site. And it's quite interesting when you look at the press coverage that uh, has been written about the study and read the comments that people make about the study as well. It's, it's almost like a microcosm of life when you uh, look at some of these comments. It's quite interesting. I think the panelists are ready. I'd like to introduce our moderator this evening, uh, Kim Ellsback, who is a professor at uh, UC Davis Graduate School of Management. Kim. Good morning. Good evening. Can you hear? Is this? Okay, it's on. Great. So um, we're, we're doing something a little bit different this year, and it sort of responds to the question that you had, um, that we've been presenting this information that's really the what, what's been happening, um, and the trend. And basically, the trend has stayed the same, um, but uh, we, we don't know why. So we haven't got data specifically about an explanation specifically about this data, but what we have put together this year is a panelist of academics from several different areas who have done research uh, in, in topics that provide explanations for this data, and they're going to talk about probable explanations or likely explanations for what's happening, and then um, take questions from you all uh, so that you can get a, a better understanding of their insight uh, of this data. So what we have is um, we've got Jeff Sherman, who's a professor in the Department of Psychology at UC Davis, and he's going to be talking about prejudice and stereotypes, biases and perception, and how that might explain some of the findings. Uh, Gina Doka, who's a pro- professor in the Graduate School of Management, who's going to be talking about social networks and how that might be a, a potential explanation. And then finally, um, Kim Shawman from the Department of Sociology, who's going to be talking about um, inter-organizational uh, and interpersonal processes and how those um, types of, of uh, organizational processes and culture might explain some of the findings um, from this survey. And what we're going to do is each of them are going to speak for about five minutes, pretty short. And then after all three of them are done, we'll take questions to any of them 
uh, from the audience. Um, so I'll just ask that you hold your questions uh, till the end. So we're going to start off with Professor Sherman, and uh, you've got your mic. Yep. Take it away. All right, thank you. So I'm here to tell you about the po potential role of gender stereotypes in producing these kinds of effects. And some of the things I'm going to tell you probably um, some of you, maybe many of you, have experienced directly or may at some point in your lives. Um, stereotypes are our knowledge or expectations about members of a social group. And stereotypes are not only descriptive, that is what we think describe members of the group, but they're also prescriptive in that we think members of groups should behave in these ways. And one of the problems is that the stereotype of women is that they're warm but incompetent. Okay, so they're, they're nice but not very confident. And the problem is that this creates a poor fit between the expectations for leaders and how women are stereotypically not only supposed to be but how they should be. Okay, and so these negative expectations then create a whole cascade of perceptual and behavioral processes that um, disadvantage women as they're working their way up through the corporate uh, ladder. So we know from plenty of audit studies that women's performance is judged um, more poorly, even when the performance is the same. If you do gender-blind studies so that people don't know the gender of the person's performance, then you see women are actually doing just as well. And so we know from plenty of studies that that kind of thing happens. Um, the flip side is that, that not only, well, we also know that, for example, attributions for success for women are more likely to be that they were lucky or that they had help, whereas for men, they're just smart and competent. Now, the flip side of it is that you also get punished for counter-stereotypic behavior. So if women happen to be tough and, and competent and hard and the kinds of things that people expect from CEOs and things, women are perceived as being especially nasty. Because women are expected to be warm, to the extent that they're assertive, it seems especially aggressive. And so women um, are often disliked if they're assertive in ways that CEOs, for example, are supposed to be, and they get called things like Iron Maiden and Dragon Lady and things that you've all seen probably unheard. And so there's research showing that, for example, the same kind of interpersonal or, or um, business um, transgression, like maybe going over the boss's head or sexual harassment, women are punished much more severely for those kinds of transactions than are men. And so there seems to be some evidence that women may be evaluated as, as equally competent as men until things go awry. And when things go badly, that's when women start to get stereotyped and be blamed and called bad names. Um, and, of course, there are significant costs to this. If you're disliked, um, you know, sort of the social aspect of leadership is important and people, um, you know, won't get hired if they're perceived as, as unfriendly. And so some of the other consequences are that there are different standards for men and women. Um, the, the stereotype that women are less competent means that women have to show greater ability and greater success before they're promoted. And there's plenty of evidence from, again, lots of studies and, and real corporations over many years that women who are advanced have stronger portfolios than men when they're advanced. It takes longer for women to be advanced. So basically women need to provide more evidence of their competence before they're allowed to advance. Um, there are also different standards. So if women are perceived as equally competent, sometimes the standards shift. And so people say, well, the standards, what's really important are these social skills. This woman obviously is very incompetent, but what's really important is she doesn't seem to be very nice, and so we don't think we can hire her. And so you have this sort of nasty double standard where women have the choice of being perceived as nice and incompetent or bitchy and competent. And those are sort of, you know, that's a hard, nasty choice that a lot of women, I think, have to face. 
And so, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the context that maybe make it better or worse. And um, one of the important ones is um, the ambiguity of the, of the criteria used for advancement. And to whatever extent those criteria are ambiguous, um, that's where you're more likely to see these kinds of effects. So you'd rather have criteria like millions of dollars earned than criteria like trait ratings of how effective this person is. Right? And so it, you know, when you have ob- objective criteria, there's always so much of this, uh, of this um, fudging that can kind of go on. Um, other remedies are things like conscious intent. Right? Generally, a, a lot of these kinds of biases happen uh, unintentionally or unconsciously even. And if people are consciously aware of the possibility for these things, if there are clear and strict guidelines within the company about sexual um, discrimination, uh, gender discrimination, then that makes these things less likely to occur. Um, objective criteria is another um, potential uh, remedy. Um, sex-blind evaluation, so people are evaluating portfolios without knowing the gender of the candidate, that, that helps. Um, and diversity is directly self-reinforcing. So one of the problems is when, when women, when you have a, a token woman in a boardroom, for example, she's particularly likely to be perceived in terms of her gender and stereotyped in terms of her gender. And so as the numbers of women in boardrooms increase, the likelihood that women are perceived only along that dimension decreases. And so it's kind of a self-perpetuating um, deal where hopefully as progress is made, progress will become easier to make. And finally, there is some evidence that stereotypes are slowly changing. When people are asked about their stereotypes of men and women in the future, um, people's stereotypes of men don't change much, but their stereotypes of women do change. And they think in the future, women will be just as competent as men, even though we don't think they are now. Um, they'll, they'll still be warm, but, they probably, um, but they'll probably also be as competent. And so there's some hope. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, well, we're, we're gonna, we, so we started with that sort of uh, inside-the-head type of, of explanation. Now we're going to move on to uh, more of an interpersonal explanation, and Professor Gina Doko is going to talk about networking as a possible explanation. Hi. Um, thank you. So, so uh, everybody knows that relationships matter, right? So who you know matters, and that's what social network research is about, this idea that who you know, the pattern of the relationships around you, are going to affect your outcomes. And there's an enormous body of research talking about how social networks, how the pattern of your relationships, who you talk to, what you talk about, how these things affect your outcomes like pay, performance, um, and promotion. Right, uh, But when you start digging into the gender issues, what's striking and what's really interesting is how much gender matters to these social network findings and these social network results. So what I want to do is I want to talk about a few of the research findings having to do with the differences between men's networks and women's networks in the, um, in the corporate world that might help to explain why women are underrepresented in the, in the top levels of organizations. So we can think about the way that men's and women's networks differ in terms of who they talk to, in terms of what they talk about, and then in terms of what they're able to get out of their relationships. What, what value can they extract from their relationships? What returns do they get from the social networks that they have? So when we think about who you talk with, men and women's networks differ in who they talk with. Men talk with other men. 
women talk with men and women, especially at the executive levels. And part of what's driving this is, is uh, something called, that sociologists call homophily, this tendency to want to be with, to want to talk with people like yourself. We are attracted to people like ourselves. So in a way, it's inevitable that you're going to want to spend time with people like yourself. Executive men, when they're, when they're acting in a homophilous way, are going to be talking to other men, and there are plenty of other men around, and that's fine. Executive women, what the situation that they're in is they would like to talk to other women, there are no other women around. So what ends up happening is they develop relationships with other men, uh, with men, and also with women outside of their organizations. So what's interesting about this is women's networks, in a sense, are more diverse. Executive women's networks are more diverse than men's networks. From a network perspective, what's, what's totally interesting about this is that diversity is generally good in social networks. Diversity gives you access to more and wide-ranging information, to more resources and different kinds of resources. But with respect to women in executive positions, what tends to happen is that instead of diversity being beneficial to them and giving them access to more resources, the women, the relationships that they have with other women don't actually help them get more information because the women tend to be at lower levels. Okay? So... Uh, this is, this is one of these general network findings, diversity is good, that doesn't apply quite in a straightforward way to executive women in, in networks. Another way that men and women's networks differ is in what they talk about. So researchers distinguish between expressive relationships and instrumental relationships. And expressive relationships are like friendship and people you get emotional support from, whereas instrumental relationships are about getting access to information and getting access to resources resources like money, like staff, things like that. Um, so what tends to happen when, for men and women is women have expressive relationships with other women and they have instrumental relationships with men. For men, they have both expressive and instrumental relationships with other men. So what this means is women are going to be talking to other women about certain things, but talking to men about certain things, whereas men are having what we call multiplex relationships with other men where they talk about a variety of things. The reason why this is important is because multiplex relationships tend to be stronger. So what this means is when you, hmm, say you are bringing your brilliant project to your boss, your male boss, and your male counterpart is bringing his brilliant project to the male boss. If they have a stronger relationship, then your project is not going to be funded 50% of the time. You know, it's not going to be an even split because people are going to tend to fund, your boss is going to tend to fund the project that is coming from somebody they know better, somebody they trust more. They talk not only about business, but they're talking about sports, their families, things that are important to them on, in a well-rounded way, in a fully rounded way. So uh, the third thing that we can think about is what men and women get out of the networks and how that differs. So there are a bunch of different studies I want to talk about, but okay, the study I'll talk about is this one. There, uh, there was a study looking at networking behaviors, things like uh, meeting, going out and meeting people at events like this, about um, making yourself more visible in organizations. And what the study finds is these kinds of activities and these kinds of behaviors actually yield different results for men and women. So these kinds of behaviors tend to be 
really only effective in terms of pay and promotion for men. And it tends to have no effect at all for women. Okay, So I guess the takeaway from all of this is, is one thing you want to be aware of is when you're getting advice about what you should do networking-wise and thinking about you know, how you should behave networking-wise and how you should manage your social network, be a little careful about what you hear because the results for you as, as women might be different from the results overall or might be different from the way men's networks work. Okay, so. Okay, great. Thanks, Gina. So we've talked about sort of an individual level explanations, interpersonal levels. Um, Kim now is going to talk more about sort of organizational level um, explanations for why we're seeing less women at the top of, of corporations. Okay, so for, from the sociological perspective, the um, underrepresentation of women amongst the top business leaders is really a pipeline issue or a pipeline problem. Um, it reflects the cumulative effect of many processes that inhibit the career progress of women throughout their careers, many processes that work against women. These processes are both interpersonal, like we've heard, but they're also organizational. They have to do with how we organize work and how we organize career trajectories. Um, and, and what we see is that these both interpersonal and organizational influences, um, they more negatively affect women throughout the career trajectory. And so the, the more negative effects may be small, may be pretty significant. But what happens is that they, they definitely accumulate over time so that um, a, after a whole career trajectory, we see a significant underrepresentation of women who are eligible for these leadership positions. So processes that happen at lower levels of hierarchy and at earlier stages in the career limit women's opportunities to develop their, their, career, their careers, their, their talents and their potential, and to be seen as having um, leadership um, potential. Um, processes hi- that happen higher in the organizational hierarchies and later on in the career trajectory um, limit the likelihood that women who actually are identified as having leadership potential are actually selected into those leadership positions. So the ways we can, the, when I talk about the way that, that uh, these organizational processes, I'm talking about the way that um, work schedules are organized, the, re- the way that career ladders are organized, the way that evaluation and um, promotion evaluations and, and performance evaluations are organized. And these all tend to be organized around certain um, cultural ideals, just like we have ideals for, for um, leaders. We also have ideals for who is the, who is the ideal worker. And our, our ideal worker norm is that that person who is completely unencumbered is not doesn't have any responsibilities outside of work and can therefore be available all the time to um, to the organization to the boss. Um, so when work um, is regularly demands or routinely demands long work hours when those work hours also are extraordinary when they're operate when they're happening outside of um, normal work hours when jobs or work requires a great deal of travel when jobs require um, relocation when geographic relocation is something that is built into the the expectation for um, the for a worker to um, demonstrate their commitment to the organization their commitment to the job and their leadership potential or their management potential these things work against women. When, um, when work is, um, when opportunities for social networking are organized um, or, or scheduled during those extraordinary um, work hours, when they happen only on 
or when they happen primarily in at conferences or, or on trips or at uh, in after hours um, um, events, then these things tend to work against women because women are less likely to be able to be there during those times, less likely to be able to um, to meet those extraordinary um, work demands. When career tracks are that lead to those upper levels of, of management are um, organized in a way that they really only have off ramps rather than um, slow lanes that have on ramps that can be um, be taken back onto that um, track to upper management positions. Then that's when we see women being less likely to um, stay on those career tracks. And when women drop off, then their then their potential is not realized by the organization. Their talent is lost from that pipeline that leads to the upper leadership upper management positions. When evaluation and promotion systems or, or processes are organized on really strict scheduling, a really strict timeline, a strict career timeline, then the assumption or those types of processes or those types of systems don't recognize that individual um, career development may happen at different tempos or the tempo for some, some very talented um, employees might happen at a slower time during periods of, the, of their life. And when individuals aren't meeting those, those strict timelines, that's when their potential is not being realized, not being identified, and not being developed, and their, their talent is lost from that pipeline that leads to the um, upper management positions. So organizations can, these, these ways that we organize work are, um, we sociologists like to say, they are socially constructed. We believe that this is the way things happen naturally when, in fact, or that they're market driven. In this context, we were talking about market driven being the natural thing. But in fact, they're things that we structure. We structure and restructure again and again and again. And so we can actually look at them objectively and we can start to restructure them and make changes to those organizational expectations, those career trajectories, those um, expectations for work schedules. So, And those changes can be made in a way that would increase the, the potential for women and for all employees to, to develop their, their um, talents and their um, potential for leadership and to move in and, and increase their likelihood of moving into those leadership positions. So we can think about... Um, really looking very seriously at institutionalizing flexible work schedules and offering those to all employees, not just to women who are in certain life stages. So we want to move away from identifying these flexible work schedules as mommy tracks or mommy-friendly jobs. Um, we can really seriously look at, at job sharing and institutionalizing that to bring in as a way to bring in, in, in more human capital that can be developed and, and, and um, tapped by our organizations. Um, we can review and overhaul our performance evaluation systems. We can make sure that we don't rely too much on those um, subjective um, assessments that Jeff's talked about. If, when, we, when we rely more on objective assessments, then the, those stereotypes have a less, lesser likelihood of, of um, influencing decisions. And we can also look at really um, legitimizing the contributions that women are already, are already making and legitimizing the, them when they do move into leadership positions. Um, really talking about their contributions to the, um, to the organization rather than congratulating them for being a woman who has moved into a particular um, place in the organization. And I want to end by saying that these... Um, 
it's really a, a very critical time for organizations to actually start thinking about this. And the, the flat lines that we saw in the, for the first presentation indicate that organizations really haven't started thinking about these things. Um, we haven't seen change, and we need to start seeing change. And I'm going to uh, make that argument based on two demographic shifts that are going on. The first is that women are now the majority of the college-educated population, the, co uh, the majority of the college-educated workforce. And that trend is increasing. So we, so that's one thing that's happening. So women are increasingly, because they're the most likely to be college educated, they're also the most likely to be earning our um, professional degrees. And so they are going to be the potential workforce of the future, the majority of it. We also have the, um, the second demographic shift is that our modal family structure right now is a dual career couple amongst highly educated individuals. So issues of work-family balance um, are, are going to be very pervasive, not just for women, but for men as well. So organizations that make these changes are going to be um, in a competitive position to actually recruit the best talent, both male and female, and to be able to retain that and develop that talent for movement into leadership positions. All right. Thanks, Kim. Why don't, why don't you guys hang on because we, we probably have some questions. So you've heard that, that women face a lot of hurdles. They're, they're stereotyped, and um, it's, because of that, it's harder for them to move up. When they do try to improve their situation by networking, they fall into traps because their networks aren't the same as men. And then um, finally, organizations make it hard on them by creating systems and processes um, that uh, make it more and more difficult for women to become part of the pool of potential leaders. So we've got a lot, um, a lot facing us, but also our panelists have talked about some solutions. So um, at this time, we can take questions for any of the panelists from, from the audience. Somebody back here, can we get a mic? Um, So just uh, a clarification first and then a question. Did you say um, women are expected to be warm and confident or warm and competent? They're supposed to be, they're, they're stereotyped as warm and incompetent. Incompetent. Yeah. Okay. So it was, okay. All right. just, just to be Le clear, I just less, wanted to know. It's relative, less competent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's probably And then the, the other question I had is, is um, in your experience, if a man is working for a woman in an executive position, is he at a disadvantage when he is seen by other men at executive levels? Because that's something that's come up um, a number of times. And I'm just wondering if that's anything that you've seen. Because he's perceived as, as somehow He's taking weaker. direction from a woman at an executive level. And other men are sort of watching yeah. that. And does that hurt well, his career? As an academic, I can't tell you through direct experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you there's some interesting data on, on sort of what, what's called backlash, where... Um, Men, men particularly, more so than women, um, don't like it when they are beaten in direct competition for advancement by women, especially only, in fact, when the women are counter-stereotypic. So a woman who's nice and warm, who happens to outperform them and gets is fine, but a woman who's sort of counter-stereotypic and beats you out for the job and maybe then is your supervisor, there's evidence that men may actually try to sabotage her and do things to uh, in inhibit her, her subsequent performance. So I don't know about how they're perceived. I'm not sure of data on that, but um, they may not like it themselves if the woman is is perceived as counter-stereotypic. You all may have. Yeah. Kim, Kim, do you have? 
So the, the other thing is that we do have a lot of data that shows that um, men who are in female-dominated occupations still move up, very, and they move up actually quite quickly. It's called the glass escalator. Um, so, um, so, and presumably they would have had you know, um, it, female um, supervisors as they're, as they're moving up in that organization or that, that occupational um, segment. Um, so, so it doesn't seem to inhibit their upward mobility. I don't know about an interpersonal, how the interactions might occur, but it doesn't seem to affect their, um, their career trajectories at all. Back here. Yeah. yeah, I have a question. Um, I'm glad you used the glass word because I wanted to ask about the glass ceiling. I've been reading uh, a lot of books about this topic recently, and um, some of them fall into different camps. Uh, one book I read recently sort of said, pipeline, you know, the pipeline's full. It's so full, it's like one of those little VW buses that students pile into, and you know, it would explode if it were any more full. There's definitely a glass ceiling keeping women from, you know, even though the pipeline's full, keeping them from getting to that very top level. And then there are other, uh, you know, pieces of literature that you read by women, most of them, by women who have made it into that top echelon, like Carly Fiorina, or um, I'm thinking of that Asian consultant that died in 2009, who was the thick-faced, black-heart gal. And, and they say, you know, no, there's no glass ceiling. Glass ceiling is of your own making. If, you, if you're only, you know, if you believe in it, it exists for you. So I wish you could talk to those, uh, those kind of two facets of that same glass yeah. ceiling topic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Maybe I, should, I, should, uh, I shouldn't roll my eyes so much. But, you know. Mine were rolling, too. <laughs> we're all sort of uh, rolling our eyes. I think that... Um, I'm going to actually borrow a little bit. I'm going to borrow a little bit from from Jeff's field and and think about how uh, attribution theory this uh, this idea that when you are successful, you do tend to attribute that success to your own wonderfulness, right? So it's hard for us to attribute our success to to things that are outside of our control. Whereas you know if if we don't do so well, we tend to attribute the causes to things that are outside of ourselves. So the women who have made it to the top, they are, you know, sort of, it's unsurprising that they're, they're talking about <laughs> why it's due to their own wonderfulness. And if other women were as wonderful as they were, then they could also be as successful. Unfortunately, the evidence is really stacked against these women. The evidence is very clear that human capital-wise, Women are just fine, and executive women are just fine. Um, and converting that human capital into the the you know returns of jobs, you know, and the top level jobs and high pay, that's something that requires other things, to, you know, to structural conditions, right. social capital to actually make that happen. So, Kim, maybe you could comment a little bit on what. She's probably Kim's one of the premier experts on sort of in glass ceiling, the, the pipeline, and, and, and the pipeline yeah. issue. I mean, she's really that's her area of expertise. So I would say that yes, the pipeline is full. It's especially full at those early early stages of the career career trajectory, or, or it's full when a new cohort of PhDs, a new cohort of MBAs, a new cohort of, of lawyers enters the labor market. And that's where we see the most gender equity. But as we watch, as these cohorts move through their careers, we see increasing differentials between males and females in terms of pay, promotion rates, and just retention in those fields. We see women dropping out. So there is the statistic that um, women, um, MBAs, um, lawyers, or law, individuals who have law degrees, 
and there's one other, I can't remember the other, other field, um, professional degrees, um, women are, are three times as likely to be out of the labor force 10 years after degree attainment. Now, the rates are low for both males and females, 4% for males, 12% for females, but that's a significant, so, so the three, three times is uh, based on r- low rates, but still that's a pretty significant gap, and those, that's out of the labor force. We have the, the, a more significant difference in women moving out of those career tracks that they were actually training to be in, and it's, or if they're still in those career tracks, being on, on trajectories, career trajectories that are slower, being paid significantly less, and not in those career tracks within organizations that are going to lead to those higher management positions. So we have women, you know, full, we have the highest rates of labor force participation um, and, and retention and, part- and staying in the labor force and working full time in the labor force than we have in the history of this country, right? So women are in the labor force. The pipeline is full. Women are getting the degrees. They're clearly sh- ha- they clearly have the human capital, but it's being sidelined. It's not on that trajectory that's leading to those most powerful positions. Okay, we have a bunch of questions, yeah. Um, I don't know if any of you can discuss um, the differences in brain. Um, There's a whole study now about the differences in the male and female brain. There's an author now who has that book out on the female brain and the male brain. And um, I just think it's really interesting because it's you know, the whole difference between women being uh, more collaborative and men being competitive. And I guess it's just my hope after reading those books that, um, that you know, the collaborative element to running a company and, and being in business will become more valuable. Because I look at companies like the whole banking um, failure was based on um, people who were just really competitive and wanted to have bigger planes or more jets or whatever. Um, and it had no um, consciousness, moral consciousness about what they were doing. And I think that if women had been there, and you notice there was no women who were involved in this, I just don't think that kind of behavior or, or those actions would have happened because we're much more sensitive about the societal impacts that we have. So anyway. <laughs> I think there probably was it. Yeah. So, so, Jeff, you have I any guess insight my, on my that? My first response would be to be very, very skeptical when you see people talking about brain differences because um, it's messy, messy data. And the brain differences, the question is, how predictive are they of the important differences that matter? And one of the problems is that, um, you know, the, the structural and psychological aspects, the social aspects of it are way more important in, than any of these sort of biological differences, which are very small. And, and the stereotypes that people have about men and women don't correspond to the actual size of gender differences. So gender differences that are really big, things like women are much more likely to move their hands when, when they speak. People don't have stereotypes about that. The stereotypes are based on these old-fashioned role ideas about what men, when men and women should do. Um, so I can't tell you whether you know more collaborative approach is going to be you know, more prominent in the business world or not. And, but I, I'm not, I wouldn't bet on that necessarily being a big difference between men and women. Okay, great, yeah. Hi, can you speak a little bit to the um, women helping other women or, or not? Because we've heard about that anecdotally, but I wonder from a study perspective um, how much women do or do not uh, bring up do, other do you wanna, women. 
I do know that um, uh, some of the negotiation research and the research that, that looks at whether women are gender differences in negotiation style and, and the ability to self-promote and to negotiate for oneself shows that women are very effective negotiators for someone else, not for other other people who they feel responsible for, male or female, um, they're not as good at, as men at valuing their own their own abilities and their own worth and, and what they should be asking for. So, and they're not, and they report in the studies again and again and again, being very uncomfortable with the idea of, of self promotion and with um, sell, and negotiating and negotiating hard. So that's why we see lots of different uh, pay differentials happening pretty early in some of those fields where the pay structures are very open to negotiation. That's where you see the biggest pay differences. And in part because if women are aggressive in pursuing this, then they're penalized for being, they're perceived as being pushy. Just in in my own research also, um, we found that in in, um, women making attributions of other women, that they can be just as critical um, as men are, um, and they can hold the same stereotypes as men about what's appropriate and acceptable and desirable in behavior. That we're women are socialized to accept those stereotypes as well. So just because you're a woman doesn't necessarily going to mean you're going to be a good advocate for uh, your female counterparts. Um, that's that's pretty um, pretty widespread. Yeah. Um, this is picking up on the statements about how there's these trends with, for the example given, that there's a lot more women graduating with college degrees. And there's a part of me that says um, until there is a business requirement for ex- executives to hire differently, that's probably it's going to be a forcing factor. So my question along these lines is with the, the younger generations, you know, X, Y, millennium, is is there research that shows that those generations actually have different values and that they will be selecting companies that allow them to live their values, which are different you know, than, say, the generations that are in their now 40s, as an example? Not in terms of sort of basic values, like what kinds of things they want in their lives. You know, I mean, it, it, it may be that they have different expectations for what men and women should be able to attain, and the expectations may change, but they're fundamentally the same people. These ideas that the millennials are some kind of alien creature that is popular in the media is also one that you shouldn't believe, probably. There, there is evidence that over time, um, the newer generations are much more likely to expect equal sharing of household labor. But we've actually kind of had the expectation of equal household sharing of labor um, for for quite a while. But in actual like facts <laughs> on the ground, it hasn't actually come come to fruition. Although we do see movement toward um, more equal sharing of, of household labor and caregiving of children. Um, I think a, a bigger impact at this point is going to be the effect of the current recession on the on the job prospects of males versus females. Um, which occupations are going to be growing at the fastest pace? Um, the the five 
that are going to have the highest rates of growth or projected to are all female dominated occupations, which are all, you know, or have big organizational structures like healthcare and, and things like that, um, service sector industries. Um, so we will see things shifting. Um, we do see some movement toward men, um, men taking on more of those responsibilities at home. And that means that they're actually going to be a force for change in organizations and in the structure of work as well as they come up against these, um, these do the dual demands of work role and family roles as well. Um, I was wondering if we could um, go back to the uh, question about um, why the tech industry has the worst numbers. And uh, we know that there's a pipeline issue in the technical fields, uh, you know, in that sphere. But wouldn't you think that um, over time, it's now been shown that, you know, companies can be led, uh, there could be boards of directors, executive level positions that don't necessarily have to come from engineering computer science in these companies. Um, so wouldn't you think that we should be, uh, that that field should be doing a lot better um, in recent years, but but it's not. Uh, just wondering why is it that tech is stuck at the bottom of your, your charts every year? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we would all love to know the answer to that. Yeah. yeah. It could be, I, I think, you know. Sorry. We could generate a lot of hypotheses based on the research that's already been talked about. Um, you know, this is a, that is an area where there could be cultures. You know, especially the dot com startups were well known for having, you know, extreme time demands on their on their on their employees, um, and they continue to have that. Um, so that could be a big factor. Um, whether the networking. Um, happens in a certain way within that industry um, or whether the implicit bias effects are significantly greater there because of the assumption of the need for technical technical skills, technical understanding and the particular um, gender bias or the assumption that women just don't have that, um, which is constantly perpetuated in, in, in our society and it comes back around on a really regular basis. Um, so I think that those would be the hypotheses. It would be, you know, we would need to study whether or not it's particularly different in, in tech fields. The other thing that might matter is we do know that, that proportions matter, right? So the proportion of women at the top uh, matters. When you're starting out with a very small proportion, women are treated like tokens. They're treated like something special. And once you get to a certain point, then it becomes more normal, right? And the tech industry, since they started out so far behind, they might be taking longer to get to that sort of tipping point. So the women in that, in that field in particular, in that industry in particular, might be having a, a hard time because there are so few executive women at the top to such that you know, seeing a woman at the top just seems still quite abnormal. So there, the progress is, is very slow, and part of the reason the progress might be so slow is because the numbers were so small to begin with. Well, first of all, let me thank you. This has all been fascinating. I've uh, experienced a lot of this anecdotally, but it's interesting to see that the studies have confirmed a lot of these things. But what, one thing that really fascinated me, I think it's Gina, is that? Yes. So in terms of the women's networking, you were saying that that was not very effective, that men's networking was, apparently, and women's was not. Can you uh, go a little bit more into that and try to give us some insight as to why that might be? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a good question. The... the um, what I was talking about in particular was a, a particular research study that looked at men's and women's networking behavior and 
tied it statistically to what kinds of uh, outcomes they experienced. And what they found was a significant effect for men and, a, and an insignificant effect for women. So they can only really, because of the way they, they measured uh, the data and the, the nature of this kind of study, they to a certain extent that you can only speculate about the mechanisms that are driving this and the reasons why men are able to convert these kinds of behaviors into into returns while while women can't. So if I can focus on a particular type of behavior, this idea of being um, this kind of behavior of making yourself prominent in an organization, making yourself visible in an organization. So this might have to do with the things that Jeff was talking about, that if a man makes himself visible in an organization and, and you know, is attached to high visibility projects, then that might just be considered stereotypical behavior, consistent with the stereotypes that people have. Whereas if a woman tries to do that kind of um, that particular kind of networking behavior where she's making herself more visible and prominent in an organization, that might be contrary to the stereotypical uh, image that, that people have of what a woman should be doing, and that they might suffer some sort of um, backlash or discount for that, or at least not get the, the positive hit for that. So it's not that these behaviors necessarily hurt you, but... Uh, you know, they, there's no evidence that the effort that you put into these behaviors is going to pay off in a major way. Jeff, Jeff probably knows more about this than I do, but there's there's a lot of evidence that stereotypes are very resistant to change, and that when people do see an exception to it, they they just subtype, they make a stereotype subtype. So. Um, she's a special case of a prominent woman, but but most women still aren't, and most women still who are prominent are still you know not not good leaders, and so um, they tend to to uh, account for these examples as exceptions, so they don't stick, and they don't they don't have any impact on the stereotype, and the stereotype is retained. Just to follow up on that, there is there is though um, uh, evidence that um, the the when people become aware are made aware that they use implicit stereotypes or implicit bias that they can actually bring it to the conscious level so that they are their decisions aren't driven by that and there's um, policy interventions that um, to the extent that I don't I don't know if they are happening in business I do know in my my primary research is on women in science and engineering and that there is a lot going on in science and engineering especially in academia and there's programs that have been developed to educate um, um, uh, recruitment committees and department chairs and and personnel all through departments about how we all do this not just males but females as well that we all do this type of thing and so that to the extent that we can become aware of it then it can be not the thing that's driving our decision making so that is an an intervention that could be um, brought into um, business organizations so maybe one more question thanks um, so I'm struck by your earlier comment, um, Kimberly, which was around the, the essentially barriers that the formal organization puts in our way in terms of processes and structures. And the reality is that changing those will take a significant amount of time. So when we look for short-term progress to address the issues that the, fa- the panels outlined, it seems like it's going to come through the informal organization, which is mentoring. And I actually haven't heard that word come up yet in the conversation. So if we think then about mentor- mentoring as a short-term way to, en- to enable progress, I'm curious to hear the reaction about male and female mentorship models. And so the two-part question is, should younger women look to m- senior men 
as mentors, given the, the, the kind of landscape you've painted? And the second part of the question is, for those of us who are senior executive women, what advice would you have us as we look to mentor younger women? So, um, first of all, there is evidence that those organizational changes can be made. You know, when um, uh, there's a case study of Hewlett Packard, who had a particular, um, I forget if it was a CEO or who came in and, and instituted the ability for, for job sharing to actually occur and, and showed, you know, it was, it was documented that those job shares, how they worked and how they were beneficial. So, basically taking one job that was a huge number of hours, breaking it down into two, two three three quarters type jobs, you know, that were maybe 40 hour a week jobs, but considered not full time in that culture. But that 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 led to really um, a benefic- a lot of benefits for the organization and really um, exciting, good careers for women. Um, so and the other thing is about um, about mentoring that I think mentoring is an extremely important um, direct intervention that can have uh, a very, um, very important like right now on the ground effect for individual women, um, mentoring around negotiation, around trying to manage or negotiate that double bind um, of like trying to be perceived as both warm and, and also competent and using those, the, both of those sides of that, um, that double-edged sword to, um, to your benefit. Um, that mentorship is really, really important. And there's a lot of models that could be brought into organizations about how to do that. Some are good, some are bad, some might work in some organizations and not in others. But there's a lot of information out there. Okay. Um, yeah, mentorship is, is, is an incredibly important thing. It's, it's an important issue to understand how to do well. And I guess one of the things that you really want to think about is is when men mentor younger men, when older men mentor younger men, the relationships that they have are deep. They are multiplex. They are personal as well as being professional. And that's one thing that can be tough for an older man mentoring a younger woman. Um, the issues can get complicated, and people can be not very nice about the, these kinds of relationships. Um, when a, a successful woman is mentoring a younger woman, one thing, one thing to keep in mind is that you can have this sort of fuller relationship, a warm personal relationship as well as a professional relationship, and talk about sort of all aspects of the business. So it's not mentoring just about how to do the work. It's also mentoring about understanding the political landscape and and one thing that we know for sure is that um, less central people have a less clear idea of what the political landscape looks like. Women tend to be less central, and so they tend to make mistakes. And so women who are successful in their careers, as they become more successful, more central in the in the organization, in the network of relationships within the organization, they're better able to make these assessments. And that's one of the key things that they can help younger women understand, to understand really who is talking to whom and who you know, works with whom, likes whom, trusts whom. And these are all the things that, that matter for helping wi- younger women understand what to do in order to get ahead. Thank you all. These are, these are great questions. I know we could go on um, for another hour, but I want to take a moment to thank our panelists for, for their You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.